family. I'm Chad Bokelman, and welcome to episode two of the Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. That's right, I'm back. Uh, it's been over a year, but this finally has come out. Um, now, <laughs> I don't know what to say uh, going into this uh this particular episode, I've got a couple of notes prepared, some uh, stuff I want to get out to you guys, so forgive me if my... um speech here sounds a little scatterbrained. Um, uh, this episode is centered around two interviews uh, in particular, um, and as far as bumper audio for either uh, side of this, uh, I did not want to uh, cramp these interviews with too much audio on either side, but there were a couple of things I wanted to uh, get out there. Um, that way this episode was not just solely those two uh, episode, uh, rather uh, interviews. Um, so, that being said, it has been over a year since Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, the spinoff podcast, has put out an episode. There is a reason for that. If you listen to the main show, then uh, you might have heard what that reason is, and if you don't, well, I'll just explain it here. When I decided to do the Green Lantern, Green Arrow spinoff podcast, I had two goals in mind for that series. The first, obviously, was to cover... Green Lantern, Green Arrow, as extensively as possible because I hold that series uh, in great esteem. Not just the Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill uh, issues that started off the series, but just the whole series in particular. Now, obviously, the Denny O'Neill and uh, Neil Adams stuff in particular is important to me because it is the more historic side of that series. It's the more comics industry impacting side of that, uh, that series the history and what that series did to the industry and to the comics code is is the main reason I like that series as a whole. Now, the second point of that uh, goal of that uh, uh, of this idea of the spinoff was to make you guys understand why the Green Lantern Green Arrow series was so very important to the history of the comics industry. Now, I know there are other series out there that are. Um, Equally, if not more important to the comics industry in the change in the direction of storytelling uh, and going up against uh, roadblocks, creative roadblocks, such as the Comics Code Authority. I do love this series very much, as I've already stated, but I understand that there are people out there who don't uh, love this series equal as equally as I do, or at least don't understand why it's so important. So the reason the first issue, the first episode, rather, of this series was to cover the history of the Comics Code Authority, so you understand what comics were like at the beginning of the creation of the industry, the reaction to the comics, uh, and then why the Comics Code Authority was created, Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent, and the Senate Subcommittee Trials on Juvenile Delinquency, and so on and so forth. That's what the first episode we had Mike Gallagher on to, to speak about that, and um, you, you know, hopefully we got uh, a little bit of information out there. That was always going to be the first episode of Green Lantern Green Arrow. Now, the second episode of Green Lantern Green Arrow was always going to be these two interviews. 
I'm going to go ahead and say it now because you probably already read it in the, the description of this episode, so there's no point to me delaying it any further as some big announcement. The second episode of this series was always going to be an interview with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Now, I knew Neil Adams would be at the uh, Wizard World Austin Comic Con in uh, November of 2013. However, it wasn't until uh, a couple of months, uh, five or six months before the, uh, the con, that it was announced that Denny O'Neill would also be there. Rather than have a Skype interview conversation with one or both of these individuals, I decided what would be better than to actually interview them in person, and it had already been so long since the first episode, I decided to wait. Because, and there's, very, there's one specific reason I wanted to wait, was while it would be great to interview them then over Skype, it would have been a whole lot better if, what if I could get Denny and Neil on the same mic at the same time? That was my absolute dream goal. Now, unfortunately, that did not happen at Wizard World Austin this year. As you can imagine, uh, when it comes to the comics side of a Wizard World show, names like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are very, very highly regarded and sought after, so it's not like those two guys had a giant window of time in which they were both suddenly available for an interview. That being said, I did get individual interviews with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. We've spoken with Denny O'Neill before uh, via Skype. Me and Jim had a conversation with him, and I will refer you back to that episode later on in the show. But uh, we've never spoken with Neil Adams, so I finally did it, guys. I don't know what else I can say. Well, uh, I'll speak more about it after the uh, after you hear the interviews themselves. But um, that was pretty cool. Um, You'll hear it in the interview with Neil, but I kind of try and say something to Neil, and it kind of gets cut off when we go into the to the interview itself. I want to say this here in case uh, Denny or Neil happen to be listening, or you guys happen to, um, you know, not have heard this from me before. While I love Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are basically the top guys in the comics industry for me. If you want to, if you, if you, as a matter of fact, if you want to say it. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are my heroes in the comic industry, and it's not just for Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Denny has written a lot of comics, not just uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, that I hold in very high regard. This is kind of a segue, but when I grew up, uh, I was born in 1987, and uh, we lived out in the country. Now, my father... Uh, you know, since he's, he was he was the coupon clipper of our family. So on the weekends, when it was time to go to town to get groceries, um, he would you know get all the coupons out from the weekly papers, uh, and then he would uh, he would uh, gather them up and go to you know like H E B and Walmart and a bunch of different stores to get the best prices. Well, we would go with him because there was no uh, supermarket at that time in our town. Now there is several uh, due to you know, just uh, expansion or whatever you want to say. But the drive into town and to these various different stores to get all these different things, because just for the best price, obviously took a little longer. Therefore, I grew up listening to my dad's music. I grew up listening to Little River Band and Led Zeppelin and Van Halen and ACDC. Uh, yes, The Who, Styx, um, all kinds of bands, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, um, Foreigner. Um, 
a whole a whole bunch of 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 60s 70s bands that my dad grew up listening to that was kind of my first foray into that time period well for some reason whether it be influenced by the music i grew up listening to or something else i also got into that era as a whole you know i like learning about that time period in history i like learning about what music did i like understanding what happened to the youth in that time i like understanding the pop culture of that specific time period in the sixties and seventies well naturally when i got into comics the sixties and seventies is what drew me is is the era of comics that drew me in neil adams and denny o'neill are the the big guys uh... in my mind of the sixties and seventies era of comics for both the writing and the artist side of things. Uh, so it's no surprise that when I became a huge Green Lantern fan, I got drawn into Green Lantern Green Arrow. Uh, and from there, I branched out into other Denny O'Neill works and other Neil Adams works, and I've got to say, those guys just knock it out of the park. Um, maybe some of their recent stuff you don't like, maybe you've run into Denny or Neil at a con and you know were off-put by something. I have no idea. I've heard stories one way or the other. It doesn't matter to me what stories I hear about the guys personally. I'm focused on what they did in the 60s and the 70s, and these guys are heroes of mine. So it's not just the series, it's the creator of the series, including their editor, Julie Schwartz. Um, Julie is also a great hero of mine from uh, the comics industry, and I wish to God I could have interviewed him. Uh, and I say that in the interview. But I'm, I've, I'm rambling on. I'm just giving you a little bit of history uh, it's not just this the the content of this series. It's the entire aspect of this series that really draws me in. It's it's the time in which it was created. It was the people who created it. It's the history of how uh, of behind how it was created. It's you know them going up against the the comics code and really shattering those barriers and walls. There's a whole lot about the Green Lantern Green Arrow series that makes me hold it in high esteem. And I just wanted to kind of get that out there. Um, and you know that just rambling a little bit. Now there were a couple of things I wanted to get out there in reference to an article I read. I bought a uh, issue of Back Issue. Back Issue magazine is issue number 45, uh, I believe cover dated December of 2010. Uh, and there's an article in there uh, by John Wells about Green Lantern Green Arrow. So naturally when I saw it I picked it up and there's a couple of bits of information uh, that I wanted to cover in there uh, on this particular show. And this information comes from directly from that issue. Now, this uh, th that issue and that article are more about the series itself, which we obviously have not gotten into. But uh, there were a little bit of bits and pieces of information uh, leading up to the creation of the series and then going forward. But I, got, I, I pulled out a couple of s snippets. First and foremost... There were, leading up into the, um, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, and again, this information is from this article. It's, it's, it's not anything I've researched myself. The series was lackluster at best. Now, I have a direct quote from here. Between 1968 and 1969, Green Lantern sales had dropped a precipitous 24%, and sell-through of a typical issue averaged 48%. Now that's versus a healthy 60% at the time. So basically, Green Lantern was dying. 
Um, you've heard this before probably on the previous issue and probably maybe in uh, other interviews with Denny or Neil or uh, articles about the history of the series. Green Lantern was dropping. Now, why was Green Lantern dropping? Now, I'm sure there are a number of reasons, one of which we'll get to in a minute. I still hold in my mind that at this time in history of comics, now I could be wrong, this is just uh, totally shot-in-the-dark thing, uh, this is not based on anything I've read, but I'm going strictly on timing here. At the time, everything was still fairly constricted and affected by the Comics Code Authority. I believe that the constraints placed upon the comics industry as by the Comics Code Authority affected the storytelling. Um, granted, there are some amazing works of comics that are out there that directly uh, contradict that, and of course, any sort of creative restriction, while uh, in my mind bad, as we alluded to in the previous episode, can also be good on creators as it forces them to think of different ways to tell stories, different ways to portray their art, and so on and so forth. So you can really revolutionize your process by forcing people to work around various things. But still, I don't think very many creators had risen to the challenge at that point. Uh, as a result, stories like, you know, for instance, Green Lantern, in uh, other characters. Now, I'm not sure when the very campy Batman stuff was taking place exactly. I'm not the biggest Batman fan, um, so I don't know that particular bit of history. But I imagine all these strange, campy Batman, Superman stories, and so on and so forth were taking place around the same time. In addition, Marvel was coming out at this, started coming out at this point. So, with with the Comics Code Authority restricting uh, the industry and forcing people to, f to tell stories differently and you know those creators at DC trying to work around that plus Marvel sort coming onto the scene and drawing people away from DC at that time because when Marvel came out it was it was huge I, I, I didn't I, I, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and just compare it. I could be wrong uh, I, I'm gonna go ahead and compare it to like when the new 52 came out did I like the New 52 in the beginning? Not really. Um, but you cannot deny that indie publishers and stuff took a big hit. It was like this whole new thing. It was the, the speculator craze was going on. There were people who hadn't read DC in years who were going to try new titles. People who hadn't read comics at all going to try things. It was this huge deal. I imagine it, that Marvel coming onto the scene was much the same thing. People can get in on the ground floor of this thing called comics, can get on the ground floor of these characters. Marvel was doing something different, something new, something exciting. Whereas DC was slowly becoming campy and boring to a lot of people. Now, I've got a quote also from this article uh, from, as a matter of fact, Alan Brennert. Uh, now, I'm not I believe this was printed in one of the letter columns of, uh, of one of the comics. Um, but... Um, at the time, Green Lantern was being written by three different people. Um, now, I'm not sure if it was alternating issues or if they would each take a story arc and then alternate or whatever it may be. But Denny O'Neill, Gardner Fox, and John Broom. According to Alan Brennert, he says, and I quote, I'm beginning to think Hal Jordan is a bit of a psycho. Within the past year, he's had two jobs, three emotional upsets over girls, and about 65 fits of depression. 
O'Neill pictures him as more of a Hal Jordan masquerading as Green Lantern. Gardner Fox pictures him as Green Lantern masquerading as Hal. And John Broom is the great equalizer, blending both personalities. It stands to reason that when three totally different viewpoints combine in a series, the result is Hash. So, you've got the Comics Code Authority restricting people, Marvel coming onto the scene and totally blowing everyone's mind, and not to mention, even if the creators were trying different things, it was on one title that three different people were trying different things. So even if you were sticking with Green Lantern, you didn't have any consistency in just one title. So it, it was hard, I imagine, to, for them to maintain sales. So at that point, obviously, is when, right around the time, Julie Schwartz approaches Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill and says, I need you to save Green Lantern, basically. So Gil Kane is out with issue number 75. Then, obviously, when 76 comes around is when the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series starts. So, there's this, big, there's this big shift happening, not just in comics, but specifically with Green Lantern. So, there's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole turn of things. Now, uh, that's, it of the, that's all of the information I, I wanted to share from that particular issue, of back issue. Now, this information I pulled just because I was curious. From Mike's Amazing World of Comics, there's uh, that website uh, is Mike, Mike's Amazing World of Comics uh, allows you to type in a, a series and an issue, and it'll tell you the cover date of that particular issue, as well as the actual sale date. Now, obviously, this the cover date of comics these days and back then was uh, in advance to the actual date in which this the the comic went on sale, much like it is today. So. Green Lantern Green Arrow number 76, which was the first in the Green Lantern Green Arrow series, because it, it, they didn't change the numbering. It was Green Lantern 75, and then at Green Lantern number 76 was the start of the Green Lantern Green Arrow. Uh, in the middle it said Green Lantern co-starring Green Arrow. But it's known as Green Lantern Green Arrow series. Now the cover date for number 76 is April of 1970. Mike's Amazing World places the on-sale date as February 24th of 1970. Now, I went on Wikipedia and I wanted to see at what point the first, the first revision of the Comics Code Authority was. Because the Comics Code Authority went into effect, but the first revision wasn't until a certain date. And I wanted to see which came first, the revision or Green Lantern Green Arrow number 76. Now I'm not saying that Green Lantern Green Arrow number 76 was the catalyst that caused the, the comics code to change everything. Although I will not completely rule it out because there is so much stuff in Green Lantern Green Arrow that happened in its first year that I wouldn't be surprised if it was one among the top five, top ten comics and comic series that caused the code to reconsider their approach to things. So I went on Wikipedia. Now this is a long thing here, but it is, it, this is taken directly from Wikipedia and I know Wikipedia is not the most reliable source, but in this case I believe it's correct. So let me go ahead and read this here. The code was revised a number of times during 1971. Okay, so this is me again. On sale date of 
of Green Lantern Green Arrow 76 was February 24, 1970. So a year later, the code was revised a number of times during 1971, initially on January 28th of 1971, so about a year after the first publication of Green Lantern Green Arrow 76, to allow for, among other things, the sometimes, quote, sympathetic depiction of criminal behavior and corruption among public officials as long as it is portrayed as exceptional and the culprit is punished, as well as, and that's unquote, as well as permitting some criminal activities to kill law enforcement officers and, quote, suggestion but not portrayal of seduction, unquote. Also, newly allowed, were vampires, ghouls, and werewolves when handled in the classic tradition such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works written by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose works are read in schools around the world. Uh, zombies, lacking the requisite literary background, remain taboo. And then Marvel, in the, the mid-1970s, called the apparently deceased mind-controlled followers of Haitian supervillains Zuvembis. I don't know if I got that right. The practice carried over to Marvel's superhero line in the Avengers when the reanimated superhero Wonder Man returned from the dead. He was also referred to as a Zuvembi. And that's kind of a... It's an interesting fact that I just wanted to throw in there so I had something to talk about. So I've been going for about 22 minutes here. But I just kind of wanted you guys to understand what was happening. So Green Lantern, Green Arrow came at a time when not only was the sales of its own series, Green Lantern, dropping, but DC Comics was falling out of favor. The youth culture was starting to change and in the midst of great change. The Comics Code Authority was about to start changing. Uh, and all there, there was a lot of stuff happening around the time that Green Lantern, Green Arrow came out. It came at a very auspicious time, shall we say. So I wanted you guys to understand that not only did Green Lantern, Green Arrow help to break down some of the ridiculously restrictive traits of the comics code uh, and, and change the game as far as the content that was covered in comics at the time, but it also came at a time to help save the character of Green Lantern, to help change the appearance of DC Comics to the mainstream audience, um, and, and, and a whole bunch of things. So, there's a lot that rides on this series. There's a lot that makes me enjoy this series. There's a lot that makes me admire Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams for what they did. And why this, this series came out. And, and, and by extension, of course, Julie Schwartz. So... I just That was just some of the information I found that I wanted to share with you guys that we didn't cover in the previous episode of Green Lantern, Green Arrow. So I, I really have no way to tie this into um, these interviews. So I will just go ahead and, and uh, kind of segue here. We I went to the uh, Wizard World Austin Comic Convention in 2013, November, late November, and interviewed a few people, uh, which you... Uh, if you listen to the main show, will have already heard. Um, it's not a numbered episode. It's the Wizard World Austin 2013 interviews. So if you want to listen to those interviews, you can definitely head on over to the uh, to the LanternCast website and uh, download it, or it's on iTunes or on Stitcher, and listen to that. Uh, those interviews include um, Vo, Vo Wynn as well as Tony Donnelly. Uh, actually, uh, Denny O'Neill as well. So here's what happened. 
Neil Adams was always going to be the interview uh, that I reserved solely for the Green Lantern, Green Arrow episode number two. Uh, I interviewed Denny O'Neill the, the, the next day, and that interview uh, you will hear the majority of on this episode. There is more to that interview. Um, I know some people out there only are interested in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, this series, and not the main show. Uh, it's a very small uh, minority of you, but there are some of you out there who are like that. Um, so, if you want to hear the rest of that interview, I actually talked to Denny kind of a, uh, about his novel, Hero's Quest, about Kyle Rayner, uh, that came out in the early 2000s, as well as um, the creation of Kyle Rayner. And it's a very brief portion of the interview, but that, that kind of wraps up that particular interview. So, uh, if you hear references to like spinning out a question into something else that you never hear resolved, just go to the uh, the 2013 Wizard World Austin interviews uh, and listen to that section of uh, the Denny O'Neill podcast, uh, or, or rather, uh, interview on that episode. So, Friday uh, of the con, I went right before closing to sit down at the Den uh, Neil Adams table to speak with Neil Adams. He's busy as always, even up until the very uh, end of the uh, end of the con. I will say that as people are trying to get out of the the convention floor, there's a lot of background noise. Um, you may hear a little bit of uh, editing, uh, you know, clips or something. Maybe something uh, audio kind of stops and starts places. That's because I had you know people were coming up to the table and I had to edit out those portions. Uh, and in the background, of course, you'll hear over the PA, the announcer saying the, the show floor is closed uh, and that type of thing. So I do apologize for all of that background noise. It's just at the very tail end of that day at the convention was the only time I could get Neil uh, without interrupting his business too much. So that's, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's the reason for that background noise there. And I do thank uh, Neil for taking the time to speak with me. It was very generous of him, uh, and it was an amazing time. Uh, and then you'll hear uh, after that, uh, there will be, I won't be leading you into the next interview, um, but there will be uh, the, the Denny O'Neill interview. Now, if you did not listen to the uh, Wizard World Austin interviews, you'll hear that it's, it's, the audio sounds much better. There was actually a Denny O'Neill panel in which he was discussing his history, which uh, in retrospect, I wish I would have recorded. It was uh, it was amazing. It was hilarious. I got I was sitting in the front row, right next to his wife, actually Mary Fran, uh, who he talks a lot about in uh, uh, in his interviews, and he's talked about about before, even on our show and our interview with him prior uh, previously. But after that 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 uh, panel was over, I was alone in the room with Denny O'Neill and uh, Mary Fran, his wife. Uh, and I wish there was someone who were there who could have taken pictures or something. Uh, we were just alone in this room with a microphone on the table recording an interview, and it was, it was an amazing experience. So I'll, I'll be talking. So, so in these interviews, kind of the, the catalyst is going in and asking them about their experiences on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, as well as starting to ask them how did the Comics Code Authority affect them going into the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series. So we got about uh, a little less than 30 minutes of lead-in here. It's more than I thought we were going to get for the bumper prior to this, uh, this, these uh, interviews. So first thing you're going to hear is uh, me and Neil Adams on Friday at the Wizard World Austin Comic Con. And then uh, next it will be Denny and I uh, Saturday the following day at Wizard World Austin 2013. So enjoy these interviews, guys, and I will be right back after the uh, – after these uh, messages from Denny and Neil.
Alright guys, I'll speak with you soon. This is, uh, it's day one, Friday, uh, Wizard World Austin, and I'm sitting with Mr. Neil Adams, the Mr. great Mar. Neil and Neil Adams, the great, the great Neil Adams, the great, <laughs> sitting here quietly and purple, what is sitting here quietly and purple, the Gosh. grape Neil Adams, grape. the grape Neil the Adams, grape. Neil, Neil Adams, the grape, <laughs> now the reason I want to talk to you before we get too far into it, and I'm, I know you hear this a lot, but you and Denny are... Why are you saying it again? Well, because I got you and Denny are, are quite possibly... become a unique interviewer? A unique, a unique interview. He asked me questions that, like, nobody else would ever think of. What's your uh, favorite pizza topic? My favorite... There's <laughs> mozzarella cheese, camel. There is no other thing. Maybe, and maybe... Uh, See, nobody makes good meatballs. Like, you travel away from New York and nobody makes good meatballs. Nobody. A few people make good sauces, so it's mozzarella cheese. Mozzarella. Extra cheese. I, of course. Extra cheese. Life's not worth living without extra cheese. <laughs> well, okay, so I started a spin-off podcast all about Green Lantern, Green Arrow. You can talk about Denny. I'm Den cool with Denny. Uh, okay. Well, um... So, I've I started a spin-off uh, all about Green Lantern and Green Arrow, and the first episode was covering about the history of the comics code. Right. I was curious, for your art and everything, because, you know, like, for instance, Green Lantern Green Arrow 85 was uh, Speedy shooting uh, heroin on the cover. How did, how did the comics code affect you guys? How did the comics code affect us, and on which, uh, which comic book? On, 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 on any of your comics at the time, before Green Lantern Green Arrow started, when you guys had to, you know, swoop in and save Green Lantern. So, before you guys swooped in and, you know, did all the stuff you did with Green Lantern Green Arrow, how... You read the comics code, the old comics Yes, I actually, uh, and, I, and I have a copy of Seduction of the Innocent, too. We even did Green Lantern Green Arrow with that stupid comics Unbelievable. Yeah, how did it affect us? Yeah, I... Leading up to it. I, I, uh... I have learned the, the art of dancing between raindrops. I wanted to do a vampire at Marvel. They wouldn't let you. For no, because, no, yeah, because yeah. you can do vampires, you can do werewolves, you can do yeah. monsters. So what I did was, I analyzed what a vampire was. A vampire is something that flies, like a bat, right? And he pres presumably sucks your blood, right? And that's a vampire, right? So what else flies like a bat and doesn't suck your blood but I can make it suck your blood but not your blood something else so I did the character Sauron who is a pterodactyl right right and he sucks your energy okay which is sort of like your blood right right what could they say that's right so they couldn't stop it right that's how Sauron got through uh, at, at DC Comics I would I would hint at things, but I wouldn't really do them. And and Danny stayed within the in, because Danny's a writer, and Danny stays within the comics code because he's, it's a job, right? You know. But we had I had issues with the comics code that I never truly presented because if I want to win a fight, I never go up against it. Yeah. I always find a way around it. Right. Raindrops. Right. So 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 here was. Here was, we were ending uh, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. We were coming down to the, really coming down to the last issues. Denny had written a story about overpopulation. Right. And I'm thinking, overpopulation? That's not an issue. It's, that's like a bad issue. Not yet. <laughs> not no, this country. No, but I'm saying it's, it's, 
In those days, there was a lot of paranoia about overpopulation. Guys were getting vasectomies and shit. It was like really bad. And, and uh, to do an overpopulation issue just added to the problem. Yeah. So all you had to do is fly over, you know, the Rocky Mountains to know we've still got a lot of space. Yeah. Anyway, so so I went, um, and I'm I'm realizing, okay, this is going to be gone. Uh, the strip and all the rest of it. So we got to do something against whatever's out there. So I did that cover, the drug issue, where Speedy's got the fixings for heroin injections in exactly the right thing, a butcher's tray and all the rest of it. Because why? How did I know all this stuff? I knew all this stuff because the city of New York had asked uh, Denny and I, or through our editor, to present a project against drug addiction. So we went to Phoenix houses and we talked to junkies. A lot. Well, over a few days, anyway. And they laughed at all our, our stupid assumptions that were totally wrong. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we both presented synopses for a, a drug addiction uh, book, which they rejected, because obviously we were too liberal or whatever. I thought, maybe through Green Lantern, Green Arrow, we could do a drug thing. Yeah. So I did that cover and handed it in. Julie Schwartz dropped it like a hot potato. Everybody dropped it like a hot potato. You can't do that. Meanwhile, I go over to DC, uh, over to Marvel, and Johnny Romita pulls me aside. He says, "You know what Stan's doing? He's doing this guy who pops pills and walks off a roof." Really? Harry Osborn? Yeah. Yeah. He walks off a roof. I said. Stan doesn't really know too much about drug addiction. I don't think anybody walks up a roof after they quote pop pills. Usually they get paranoid and crawl up in the uh, crawl up in the corner. But I said that's that's interesting. What's what's going on? Well, they sent it over to the comics code, and the comics code rejected it. So what's Stan going to do? He went to his uncle who ran the company, and he said, "I want to run this without the comics code seal." He said, "Yes, sir." He said, "Go ahead." <laughs> he said, "Go ahead." Who gives a crap? He ran it. So I come back two weeks later. I go see Johnny. Johnny, what happened? Johnny says, nothing. It went out. Nobody said anything. Nobody even noticed. They didn't notice it. Nobody. Over at DC Comics, the place is exploding. Why? Because they had that cover there. They could have done something, and they blew it. And Harry wasn't popping pills on the cover. And Harry wasn't popping Oh, no. That was, shit was happening on the cover. So what do they do? They have a meeting of, the, of all the publishers, because all the publishers had this self-regulating agency that was the Comics Code. So they, within a week, they rewrote the Comics Code. And we started doing that book. Then he went off and did a script, and we started doing that book. It was two issues, not just one, like the previous two issues. It was two issues, and we kicked ass. We, we kicked ass. And, and from the point of view of the Comics Code, we had destroyed the Comics Code. Yeah. Between Stan and us. And that's why I, I like you and Denny so much. I have to give the credit to Stan. Stan did it. Stan may not have known that much about drug addiction, but he's really the boy that did it. He just kicked the the door open. That's right. And you guys are just the next one through. We're, we're walking through. <laughs> Unbelievable. Amazing. So yeah, no, it's, uh, it's uh. so the comics code. Look, the comics code was uh, from our, from my point of view, a flash in the pan. It was like, what, what is the key thing that you have to do to kill the comics code? And we did it and killed it. 
And we killed it. We really destroyed it. Although it took a few years for that to actually die. Yeah, but who cares? Yeah. When they rewrote it, they allowed drug addiction, all kinds of stuff. It was meaningless, and its fangs had been pulled. Yeah. You know, it's nice that it lasted. I'm sure that the lawyer who ran it was grateful to get a salary check for a couple of years, but it was crap, you know? We now, didn't we didn't like it, we got rid of it. Now you and Denny, are you both kind of politically matched as far as what what your viewpoints are, or are you just like polar opposite ends of the spectrum? No, I would say I would say that Denny and I don't necessarily agree on many things, but Denny Denny is a liberal and I'm a liberal. Um, I guess and Denny's kind of a, like a you know, I wouldn't say a raving liberal, but he's really, you know, out there and he'll he'll pronounce uh, his his ideals. I'm a little different. I'm quiet and I go about change things. Right. So nobody like nobody suspects what I'm doing. Then he'll tell you to your face what he's doing, but nothing then gets done. I'm that guy that kind of quietly gets it done. Because I, because I, I learned early in life that uh, you can make a difference. My mom told me. <laughs> so the reason I ask is because it wasn't just drugs; it was racism. It was, like you said, overpopulation. It was religious zealots, whatever. There was, there was, uh, there was uh, John Stewart. John Stewart was, uh, was uh, of course, my, my concept and idea. Uh, in in uh, in comics, we had a tendency if we did black people to either make them from Africa or make them ghetto characters, uh, hitters, you know. And I didn't think that was really good. I don't think that answered the problem. I think I thought we needed a real college education, reasonable black man. Whether it was out college education or high school educated, he made his way through whatever. We needed somebody who was black and was equal. Automatically, automatically. And so I went to Julie Schwartz and I said, Julie, uh, you know, uh, Green Lantern ought to have a second Green Lantern in case something goes wrong. He says, well, he has one of those. And he pulled out Guy Gardner. Yeah. And I said, well, it was a blonde uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, gym teacher. Right. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> That's great. But Julie, uh, this, this is the story. This, this purple guy lands on Earth. He knows he's going to die. He sends the ring out to find the bravest man on Earth, okay? He passes by Bruce Wayne, Superman, and all the heroes of the DC and Marvel Universe and goes to a test pilot. I'm willing to buy that, I think. Chuck Yeager, for example, is one of the bravest men on Earth. Probably got balls of steel, but... And you created a guy in a space age, so... But, but the second guy... The ring goes out and finds a Midwest blonde Midwestern white Anglo-Saxon gym teacher. Gym teacher. <laughs> For some reason, I, I don't really, I don't really buy that. Why? I don't understand. What's your problem? I said, okay, Julie, you ever watch the Olympics? She said, yeah, I watch the Olympics all the time. I said, you ever notice like three white guys up there? You know, gold, silver, bronze, all white guys. I, I. I Somehow I never, I mean, maybe archery. Yeah. Maybe I see it in archery. Maybe they, 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 they do that. But generally I see black guys and, and Asian guys. So I find it a little hard to believe. I said, Julie said, okay, we could make him an Asian guy. I said, well, okay. But not a black guy? I said, Julie, you don't really have a good record when it comes to Asians. You had a, 
the first five or seven years when I read Green, Green uh, Lantern, there was a guy that was hanging around with Green Lantern, and you called him Pie Face. Now, I really don't think that you have a very good record with Asians. I, my face, it sounds pretty insulting to me. I bet he did not like that. <laughs> he did not like that. And so I said, so he said, you want to do a black guy? I said, yeah, I think probably, you know, black guy. I think it would be a good idea. He said, uh, I see. Uh, you have to understand that New Julie was, Julie Schwartz was a New York Jewish liberal focus on Jewish, because Jewish liberal in New York has got to be more liberal than anybody on earth. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a pride thing. Right. I have to. So, uh, you can catch him by the pride and twist him. So he said, uh, he said, okay, fine. You have to draw it. I said, well, not only do I have to draw it, I'm the only one who can draw it, Julie, because nobody in comics can draw black people, including black artists. They do have wide noses and big lips. That's the way they are. They have kinky hair. It's not little short hair. It's kinky. It goes like this. But it's not over-exaggerated like everybody was doing. No, but they didn't do it. They did it with straight lines. I don't understand that. You can't draw kinky hair with straight lines. Yeah. It's little squirrely lines like this. That's how you draw kinky hair. That's the way it is. Curly hair. Yeah. They know it. We know it. They have different hair products than white people because yeah. their hair is the way it is. They have to straighten it all the time. So he said, fine. So Danny wrote the script. <laughs> and it, it came out the way I wanted it. it was, he was an architect. He was out of work, which is perfect for, for a black uh, uh, architect to be out of work in the 60s. Perfectly logical. Uh, he was angry, though. And he was angry, but, you know, in the 60s, a college-educated black man had a maybe 50% chance of keeping a job because yeah. he was black. So anyway, <laughs> I read the name that Danny put in there. His name was uh, Lincoln Washington. <laughs> I've never heard that story in my life. <laughs> so I went to Danny, and I said, Danny, Lincoln Washington, this is not me. That was Julie. Julie came up with Lincoln Washington. Of course he did. So I went to Julie, and I closed the door, because there was going to be some yelling. <laughs> I yelled at Julie. I said, Lincoln Washington. <laughs> Julie. He says, what? I know lots of guys with names like that. <laughs> I said, yes, Julie, you do know lots of guys with names like that, because that's a slave name. And that may be the worst slave name I've ever heard in my life. If you want to fill this place with letters from bl angry black people and a lot of angry white people, you just name them Lincoln Washington. I'm not going to draw the comic book, but you get somebody else to do it. So well, what's the problem? I don't understand what the problem is. The problem is you put a slave name on our next big superhero, and that's stupid. He said, well, what would you call him? I said, well, a regular name. So well, what do you mean? What kind of a name? I said, a regular name, any kind of a name, the, the kind of name you meet somebody on the street, just a regular name. So like what? I said, like John Stewart. How would I know he'd become a late night comedian? <laughs> no, really. <laughs> so he said, fine. So anyway, I did it. Okay. This story has two endings. Okay. This, the first ending is this. DC Comics and Marvel and uh, Warner's announced that they were going to have a Green Lantern movie. And, they, and it's going to be Hal Jordan is going to be Green Lantern. 
And every kid in America said, who the hell is Hal Jordan? Okay, man, it's great. The girl from the Justice League anime series. I have no idea who the... Well, the, the, you have to understand that comic books are lucky if they sell 80,000 copies. Right. That's like a good sale. Kids watch this TV show in the millions. Every kid in America knew that Jon Stewart was Green Lantern. Was Green Lantern. Yeah. That's what we did when we did that character. Not so much in the comic book, but when he shifted to the cartoon show, kids accepted a black Green Lantern just like you'd accept a, a, a woman president. Or oh, maybe a little different. Was he always going to be Green Lantern, or was was did Julie want to change it to you know you know like Black Lightning and Black Condor? You know, all, all the black characters have different kind of names. It was always going to be Green Lantern. Always. Okay. He was the replacement for Hal Jordan. Right. And uh, on the Justice League, everybody decided because it was a logical decision that we make uh, John Stewart, who seemed more adult than the other characters, into Green Lantern. Anyway. For whatever the decision, the kids in America just revolted and said, this is insane. And then they went on to lose $150 million. Well, maybe that wasn't the reason why, but I got to tell you. There's stuff wrong with that movie. There may be other things wrong with that movie, but if you start off not having Jon Stewart in there somewhere, I think that's a big mistake. And they left things like, important things like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams out and put in Jeff Johns and Gil Kane which I think is fine if you don't want to have humanity and you want to have CGI alien creatures all over the place. Okay, so this is the other ending of the story. <laughs> Julie Schwartz and Sal Harris, the head of production, came to me, not to, not to Julie or to Denny, came to me, and I had colored the story, and I made his skin dark brown. In comic books, they didn't do that. They made Jackie Johnson and other characters had what we call in comic books shit brown skin. That's uh, solid yellow, 25% red, 25% blue. We never made them rich brown. Yeah. Okay. In uh, in Marvel, Gage of the Howling Commandos was gray. It wasn't even brown. He wasn't even shit brown. It was gray. You can look it up. So I made him a rich brown. So they came to me, Julie and Saul, and said, Neil, uh, you know, when you number the colors on the brown, uh, this John Stewart guy, you, you have it that the dark brown. I said, yeah. Well, well, we don't usually do that. We don't usually color black people with dark, dark brown skin. What do you have to go through with this character? It's ridiculous. I said, I said, yeah. So. Well, uh, they said, don't you think black people will be offended? Because you're coloring the way they're supposed to be colored? <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, for whatever reason, I don't think they'll be offended. <laughs> if we color them the way they look, the show closed. Is now closed. Why, why would you the think they would be offended? Well, are you sure? I said, if I were black, I would be quite happy to be have the character color brown. That's what I am. <laughs> well, 
Okay, Neil, but you, you remember, you're going to take the hit for this. And nothing ever happened. <laughs> what would happen? Work? What would happen? What would happen? Like, out of their minds. They're out of their minds. Well, I think I'd be glad to take the hit for that, guys. You just, like, if anybody, anybody has a problem, you just send them to me. We'll be fine. Totally fucking insane. <laughs> well, Neil, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to talk with me. Uh, I, I met, you know, obviously with uh, Julie passing away, he's one of my favorite people, and I would have loved to talk to him. I'd love to hear these stories. Well, you gotta, you got to understand, you know, no, none of us are safe from being lost in time. That's right. Just the way it is. Yeah. I'm sure that my kids laugh at me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again. Pleasure. Pleasure. And uh, everything you've done. Okay. So it's, it's day two, uh, Wizard World Austin, and I'm sitting with Denny O'Neill. Uh, and uh, we've spoken with you before, but uh, the first episode of the, the spinoff podcast I did about Green Lantern and Green Arrow, we covered the history of the Comics Code Authority and kind of gave the listeners a feel for uh, why the Green Lantern and Green Arrow series was so important. And I was wondering, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you specifically was, when you hit the industry, and we talked about it briefly during the panel, when you hit the industry, how had comics changed when, when you got in there? How did it affect your work? Well, uh, comics were just in the process of becoming something they had never been. Mm -hmm. It was still pretty disreputable. Uh, I didn't notice. I woke up one day and suddenly I, I, I was a respectable writer instead of this quasi-pornographic sneaky guy who perpetrated trash. Yeah. Uh, that had changed. Stan Lee was in the middle of a huge creative explosion. Mm -hmm. He was making comics cool to read on college campuses. That was brand new. Yeah. If you read comics, you were either a kid or somebody with not many reading skills. Mm -hmm. In the popular mind, that was never actually true. But that was the, because of all the stuff that happened with the, the Keith Hoffer Committee investigating comics and Frederick Wortham's book exposing comics, mm -hmm. uh, we were pretty, the, the medium was pretty disreputable and, and ver almost extinct. Mm -hmm. We lost something like 40 companies going into the end of World War II and they were down to fewer than 10. I've actually so, read the Tencent Plague and, and yeah. he lists all the, the people who never worked in comics again yeah, after that. that. Was, yeah, that's it. Uh, David did a, an extraordinary job of yeah. research. Well, Stan was becoming famous and, and was doing PR, like having a Marvel night at Carnegie Hall, for example. Uh, so it was changing a little bit, but it was still a very low-rent business. We didn't get paid very much. We, I, I work uh, on the board of Heroes Initiative, which is a, a, an organization that grants money to comic book people who are destitute. And you'd be surprised how many, even now, there are. Uh, it was fine for me, because I was... I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was drifting out of the service, involved in the peace movement and the civil rights movement, but not deeply involved. It wasn't absorbing my, my life. And along came, comes an opportunity to go to New York and write comics. Yeah. Well, 
who wouldn't do that uh, under those circumstances? Uh, and then, uh, as I said during the panel that Danny and I just did, uh, I thought maybe a year, you know. I had been in New York when I was in the Navy and I got shore leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's about as much as I knew about the city. But it was a chance to go, you know, and see Greenwich Village and it's all New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, I'd do it. And I never quite got back to the journalism gig. After a year, because life is what life is, I had a, uh, an infant to support. And uh, I discovered I had an aptitude for this odd little literary backwater, a strange kind of combination of short story and film and theater and even poetry in that the, the language has to be very compressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also discovered I kind of liked it. Yeah. Uh, it was a job, it was always a job, and one of the differences between the, some of the younger guys and me is it was never my burning vocation, my, my burning desire. It was a job. In the last 15 years, it was the best job on earth. Mm -hmm. I could not ha imagine a better, uh, anything that I could have done that would have been better for, than that. Because when I started, a comic book editor was a guy who lived in Queens, took a subway into work, got two weeks off in the summer, didn't have an expense account. It was a kind of humdrum job. The last 15 years, we went all over the world. And we had lunch in the Senate dining room and uh, got to places I would have never gotten to. Yeah. Would have never thought to go to Chile. Yeah. We had a great week there. Argentina, a great week, but I would not have ever thought to visit those places. And then I woke up one day and found I was respectable. Uh, Danny was teaching comic book writing at New York University. And when he quit to write his book on Jews and comics, I inherited that job. And Danny and I have appeared at the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian. I have a son who's in the movie business. When I went out to write television uh, a long time ago, I did a show for CBS. And the agent involved said, don't have to talk about the comic book. You can talk about your short stories or your journalism. Soft pedal a comic book thing. Mm -hmm. Even though I was going out to work on a show that was pop culture. Mm -hmm. uh, now my son says any connection with comic books will open the door. Not necessarily get you the job, but, yeah. but you'll, you'll, you'll get the appointment with the producer. Yeah, That's crazy. Now, fast forward a few years, Julie comes to you and says Green Lantern's dying and I need you to save him. It's like you were doing with Batman and stuff. Mm -hmm. when, when he comes to you and says, save Green Lantern, okay, it's a chance to work on Green Lantern. What made you go, not only am I going to write stories about Green Lantern, I'm taking him out of space, and we're going to cross the country, hard-traveling hero style, and deal with these social issues? Well, I believed in the social issues. And... I guess I was kind of looking for ways to make a contribution. I had gone on the March on Washington, and when we were still in St. Louis, we were around the civil rights movement a little bit. 
And I had done two comic book stories, one at Charlton when something that Dick was going to publish fell through at the last minute. There was a legal entanglement. They did, discovered they didn't have the rights to it. So he said, you know, call me up and said, you know, can you give me 20 pages by Thursday about anything? So I wrote, I uh, took that as an opportunity to write a story with a very gentle anti-war message. And I was working for Julie on the Justice League. I did a story about that river in Ohio that caught fire, an environmentally themed story. So Julie said, oh, do something with Green Lantern. And it occurred to me that this was my chance. I'm not a charismatic, fiery young leader but I'm a guy who writes comic books. And this guy, this editor, whom by that time I completely trusted, uh, is, ask, is giving me carte blanche. Mm -hmm. So I did that first story, uh, thinking that Gil Kane would do the art. Neil has a kind of long story about he got involved, but basically it's that he wanted to do Green Lantern, and this was his chance too. Right. And... Um, Voila, suddenly we were getting invited places and there were stories in the, in the press and uh, we, we were tasting respectability for the first time. Yeah. Mixed feelings about that, but uh, it ran its course and if we had kept going, I'm not sure this stuff would have held up from my end on quality. Mm -hmm because I had done everything I was genuinely concerned about as a, a husband and a father and a citizen. And one thing that I was not genuinely concerned about, an absolutely egregiously bad story that I should not have written. But uh, we had kind of covered the territory by then. Of, of, the, of the social issues at the time. Yeah. 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 Everything I was genuinely concerned about, I got a story out. And you got a story of two issues, because at the time it was a single issue per issue, a single comic issue per social issue. And then you hit drugs, and it was two issues. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it followed the, the Harry Osborne doing pills storyline, which Stan printed without the code. Uh, and then the, the mayor of New York, right, came to you and John said, V. Lindsay. Yeah. yeah. He didn't come to us. I didn't know how. Don't know how that happened. I saw that comic book several times today, so it it did happen. But yeah, uh, Stan has a, an interesting story about his drug thing. Uh, what happened, well, among other things, was that a bunch of the, the comics code called Stan and maybe Carmine and me and a few other people in to sort of arbitrate this and what. Stan decided to do was to, uh, w with the, uh, on the advice as he tells it of his boss, Martin Goodman, or with the consent of Martin Goodman, was to run it without the code seal. Later on, that, that was done several other times. What we decided to do, or our bosses, was to follow the code. So, okay, there was a provision in the code that says you cannot show in detail how a crime is committed. We had a shot in there where Speedy shoots a, uh, puts a spike in his arm. Technically, that's showing how a junkie commits the crime of illegal drug use. Right. Uh, I think, and uh, that was on the cover. I think Neil 
altered the panel a little bitty bit. Yeah. Uh, it was like below the table or something like that. Yeah, that yeah. was it. So you technically, I mean, it was an absolutely idiotic. Uh, it, it's what rules can do when they're badly interpreted. Right. I never had any. I, I mean, my kind of liberal instincts and my cherishing of the First Amendment bristled at the idea of any kind of censorship. Right. But I'm willing to put up with it if you tell me what the rules are. Right. Tell me exactly what you want me to do, and I will, I will push the envelope, but I won't exceed it. Mm -hmm. But we, the, the code was not administered evenly, shall we say. Right. That's okay. I mean, the story works. We got our point across. It it did not hurt the narrative. So, and then of course, uh, I, don't, I mean, you. I know you don't keep up too much, but I know uh, uh, Speedy would go on to lose an arm and go insane and poor bastard had a yeah. terrible time. Yeah, lost his kid and everything. Yeah. Um, and then you covered, you know, overpopulation and stuff. And I spoke with Neil yesterday, and he told me that he wasn't convinced that overpopulation was an issue at the time. But, uh, and then he told me an interesting story I'd never heard before. When you guys invented John Stewart, Julie wanted to call him Lincoln Washington? Yeah, that, I've heard Neil tell that story. I don't remember, but I don't doubt it. Right. Uh, what I was talking about before, you, until you have a reason to question something you assume to be right, you don't. Mm -hmm. uh, it's why things like busing, there's a part of me that doesn't like that, but it's absolutely true in the military. If you've never met a black man and you're forced to shower and to fight and to live with him, you realize he's basically no different than you. Right. But you need the contact mm -hmm. to get past what you've always had, you've never had any reason to doubt was true. Right. Yeah, Miss, Miss, uh Mis misperceived notions I mean, or whatever. Our friend Will Eisner took some grief for Ebony. Mm -hmm. uh, was a kind of caricatured black kid. He grew up in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. When he went into the army, he came out and almost immediately introduced Sammy. So, you know, he, he kind of got Ebony off stage. Mm -hmm. But he he was doing what he knew to do, and when he found out that that wasn't right, he changed. That's all you can ever ask of anybody. Right. And, I'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of dove this, dovetail this question into our next topic, but you say you don't like writing godlike characters like Superman, uh, Captain Adam, so on and so forth. But in Hard Traveling Heroes, you threw a guardian in with them, which was essentially a godlike being. Well, he was a godlike being that didn't have much in the way of physical powers. Right. And what that was, I've, I don't know why we came up with that. Part of it was road stories, and particularly because of uh, Easy Rider. But going back to Huck Finn, road, road stories are deep in our culture. Right. That undoubtedly, and on the road, by, I, was, you know, I was heavily, uh, I had been knocked out by Kerouac when I first read him as a very young guy. So that was all in there, but... If you look at that in another way, it's the angel coming down from heaven to find out what human beings are really about. Right. He, they are godlike in terms of wisdom, except that uh, the subtext of that was they're not really. 
Yeah. Everybody has always assumed, including them, that they are. Yeah. Because it's never been questioned. But they're really not all that smart. They're just real old. Real old people, as that beautiful woman and myself can attest, <laughs> kind of get fixed in our ways, you know, and we don't like to change our... We ain't going to go with all this new stuff. <laughs> so that was that guy. It was the education of a an alien mm -hmm. to teach him what being human being was really about. It's one of the aspects of the story that I kind of like. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good perspective. All right, well, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to speak with me. It's been great, and uh, thank you for everything you've ever done for comics, Green Lantern, whatever it may be. Well, really happy to be of service. Thank you. Okay, and that was the uh, interviews with uh, Neil and Denny. Um, I never thought I'd get to see both of those names and have both of those interviews in, in one episode. So we've already covered the Wizard World Austin interviews, and I talk, talked uh, in that episode about the con itself. Just wanted to get a little, uh, I guess, I focus a little bit in on just Denny and Neil themselves. Neil's always, you know, any con he's ever been to, and he goes to a lot of them. He's got a booth that's like the size of like three or four different booths, and he's got prints and oversized prints and copies of his work and, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, he does head sketches and signatures and photographs and all kinds of stuff. So he's he's uh, constantly busy, constantly making money. One thing I will say, uh, you know, to his credit is, you know, a lot of people who have boosts that size who rake in that much dough at a con, you know, for lack of a better phrase, some of them have a intensely uh, profit-driven mentality. Um, when they get that big, they you know, if there's a long line, the mentality uh, easily kicks in of, you know, let's let's get this line through and let's get, you know, all the money we can. And, you know, that way people standing in line aren't like, well, this is taking too long. I'm just going to give up and come back later. And, you know, they never actually come back later and that revenue is lost or whatever it may be. Long story short, what I'm trying to say is Neil uh, Adams actually spends time speaking with people. You know, I, I was... You know, when I went to tell him, hey, I'll be, I would like to be interviewing you later this afternoon, I was standing in line, and he was spending time talking to people who were buying prints or whatever it may be. So that's, uh, that's awesome, and, and to, to Neil's credit. Uh, and Denny didn't have his own booth per se, but he was there with, uh, at, a, at the Hero Initiative booth. Uh, just, you know, kind of promoting the Hero Initiative and bringing people to their table, you know, that type of a thing. Uh, he was doing signatures, obviously, for free, but, you know, donations were accepted um, to the Hero Initiative, and the profits would go to the Hero Initiative. Now, the Hero Initiative, at, and you can go to their website, heroinitiative.org, uh, and I'm just going to read from their website here what they are. The Hero Initiative is the, the first ever federally chartered, not-for-profit corporation dedicated strictly to helping comic book creators in need. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who may need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. It's, it's you know that's the Hero Initiative mission statement. You know, they they help comic creators in need, uh, usually the more uh, experienced individuals in the industry who no longer have current work. You know they're not constantly published or anything, you know, someone who maybe gets their money from cons rather than actual published work, you know, that type of thing. So, 
Denny was there signing and, and drive, driving a lot of people to the Hero Initiative booth. Uh, I did pay for one signature from Neil to get him to sign uh, my my you know collected edition of Green Lantern Green Arrow, the the trade that just came out that has all of the the Denny and uh, the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams uh, GLGA stuff. Uh, and then I had uh, Denny sign that and Neil, so that. You know, it, I didn't like do a, like a personalization. It just has their signatures on it, and I don't care if anybody like offered me two thousand dollars or something. I would never get rid of that thing. It's so cool. And of course, I brought a lot of other stuff for Denny to sign. My copies of uh, uh, of Heroes Quest, his novel, you know, his guide to writing comics. Uh, I brought my copy of Green Lantern, Green Arrow number eighty-five, where uh, Speedy shooting a peril went on the cover. Uh, the Snowbirds Don't Fly issue uh, that I had Neil sign two years ago at at New York Comic Con. I had Denny sign that, so that's awesome. Not much else to say there. You know, most of that con I already covered in that con episode. So uh, what I'm going to do uh, is I'm just going to let those interviews speak for themselves. But, guys, I wanted to make sure I, I got some uh, listener feedback um, in. I know it's been a year since the episode has come out for the Green Lantern, Green Arrow podcast, but I did save the emails I received um, from listeners about the Green Lantern, Green Arrow first issue podcast. So... This one is from Andy, uh, and I got it uh, November 15th, 2012, so that just kind of lets you know uh, how old this is. <clears throat> but Andy says, Hi Chad, I have just finished listening to the first Green Lantern, Green Arrow podcast. I just wanted to say I thought it was excellent. It is interesting to listen to an in-depth analysis of not just the comics, but of comics within their cultural setting. I tweeted you a while ago in response to your tweet about the series, and I said at the time that the GLGA run was a reflection of the times in which it was written. The podcast reinforces my opinion that comics can be more than entertainment. I do admit that I read them purely so that I can be entertained, by the way. And they do provide a commentary on the society we live in. The arrival of Baz and GL, that would be Simon Baz, is more or less a sign of the times we live in. However, my point is that while I enjoy to listen to you guys going into the comics in detail and finding nuances that I may not have seen myself on so on, it was good to hear something that comes at the topic that comes at the topic in a different way. I grew up in the 60s and 70s in England, and a lot of this stuff was the back was the background to our lives at the time. I am enjoying now rereading the GL run from that time. Keep it up from Andy. Well, Andy, thanks for the email. Um, you know, there's not, not a whole lot to comment on there. I think, I mean, he uh, it was, it was more commentary rather than any questions or anything. So, you know, I do I do agree that that uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, to someone coming into Green Lantern, Green Arrow from not growing up in that time period or you know, who have heard secondhand about this series, a lot of the criticism of the series, uh, if any, is that it's heavy-handed, it's preachy, you know, that type of thing. Well, you have to remember what happened at the time in the industry, what happened at the time in the culture of America, and the writing style of the time. You have to understand that subtlety wasn't really anyone's forte. You had to kind of... Everything in the time at the time, I think, and now granted, I was born in 1987, but as I said earlier in this this uh, episode, I'm kind of obsessed with the 60s and 70s. Uh, so 
in the in the history of that time period, not just with comics and music, but you know po politics and youth movement and pop culture and you know all that kind of stuff. So now I, I haven't done any in-depth professional studying into that time period, but from what I've been able to gather with my experience and in looking into that time period, I would say that subtlety was was not the forte of that time it was it was in your face it was bold it was you know we're we're coming at you know we're not you're you're not going to be able to read between the lines and come up with a billion different explanations for what we can mean by what we're saying we're going to say what we mean and it's going to you're going to understand our point whether you like it or not and although Denny and Neil weren't technically quote-unquote kids at this time when they were doing Green Lantern and Green Arrow. They still had that kind of mentality. And I believe that that what Andy says here is actually, you know, it, it, it is correct. It's a sign of times. It's a reflection of the times in which it was written. Um, and, and I appreciate you listening to the episode and sending me the feedback. That was awesome. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I think he brings up a good point. Um, now, while he didn't mention that, but... It, I, it kind of helped me helped me lead into that. Yeah, GL, GLGA was definitely uh, one of the criticisms that can be leveled at it is its preachiness and in-your-faceness. And I think that is, you have to remember when you read it, it's a sign of the times, not a sign of, you know, anything else or bad writing or whatever it may be. So thanks again, Andy, for that, uh, for that email. Uh, I got another email from Scott, uh, who has, you know, s uh, sent us an, uh, emails in the past and the been active on Twitter and such. And he says, Chat, the first episode of GLGA was excellent. I learned a lot about the history of the comics that I never knew. Mike did a great job also, and you guys clicked very well together. Everything you guys talked about was new to me, so I really enjoyed listening. I might suggest updating the description in iTunes to reflect that the first episode includes discussion of the history of comics and the Comics Code Authority leading up to the GLGA series. I know I always cruise through the descriptions of podcasts looking for episodes I might be interested in, so you might be able to grab a few more listeners that way. Again, I don't really have too many comments because everything you guys talked about was new to me. I'm looking forward to episode two. You told me a while ago who you had on, and I can't wait, Scott. So I got that also uh, November 15th, 2012. So um, <laughs> it's been a while. Thank you, uh, Scott, for all your positive comments about the show. And, yeah, I, I believe Mike and I really worked well together in that episode. And I'd like to have him on at some point in the future again. Um, so that would be awesome. Now, I do you, – you mention, he mentions updating the uh, description. That was before, obviously, I took over the show, before I got in, uh, into the swing of what it takes to post an episode and what the description should be and so on and so forth. Now, as far as updating the description – there are three XML files that we use, and, and I'm not going to go in, into any sort of de detail, but there are three XML files that we use to update iTunes, the website, so on and so forth, and it's a lot of code. To update an existing episode might be more complicated and might take iTunes a while to adjust. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to leave the first episode of Green Lantern, Green Arrow uh, as is. Um, I do appreciate your comment, and I agree with your comment now, obviously, that I've taken, you know, since the first episode of GLG, I've taken the reins of the show and, you know, brought in, uh, Mark on, and I know a little more about the description. So I'll definitely make uh, the descriptions less comedic and more descriptive, 
you know, the Lantern Cast main show, it's, you know, kind of goofy, kind of descriptive kind of descriptions for the episodes. Uh, but GLGA is more, uh, hopefully, a more educational, retrospective type of show. So those can be a little more literal type of description. So I'll definitely keep that in mind. Um, thank you so much for looking forward to episode two. I know Scott has been looking forward to this episode for a while. Not just since uh, November 15th, but him and I have talked about this uh, for a while now. So, Scott, hopefully it was worth the wait. I, 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 don't, I, I know not very many things are worth a year wait. Uh, so I doubt it was worth that long of a wait, but hopefully it was. It satiated your desire enough for the GLGA episode that you can stave off some of your anger at me for taking too long to get this episode out. So I appreciate, I appreciate your feedback, Scott, and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully you guys, uh, both you and Andy, enjoyed this episode. And hopefully, you know, you said you didn't know a whole lot about the history of comics, so hopefully that little tidbit uh, at the beginning of the episode about uh, where Green Lantern was and where the industry was, as well as the, the comments from both Denny and Neil in the interviews, were able to give you some more information. So... Uh, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for, for that information. And lastly, uh, I wanted to, uh, this is not an email, but rather a, uh, a forum response to the, uh, to the episode posting about the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow show. First episode, and this is from uh, Maximara, and uh, th that's his forum name, him or her, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Now, he makes two points on the, uh, the forum. I'm only going to read the first one because the second one is really long. And I apologize that it's uh, that I'm not reading it, but I, I will I'll include a link to the the original um, forum post uh, for the first episode and the forum post for the second episode. So if you go to lanterncast.com uh, and you click on our forum link, there will be a topic for the Green Lantern Green Arrow episode two episode. Within that, there will be a link to the Green Lantern Green Arrow episode number one forum topic. So you can read all of uh, Maximar's. Uh, uh, points now, he's got uh, he or she uh, again. I'm sorry. Has got a lot of information on on the history of of various comic publishers uh, and stuff that was going on at that time. And uh, I'm I'm not reading it obviously because it's it's longer. However, I do want to encourage you guys to go read it because he has a lot of good historical points of reference uh, in his responses. So th there's that. But anyways. Maximar says in his first uh, forum response that I want that I'll be addressing here, I would like to correct one misconception of the post seduction of the Innocence era, where uh, there were mainstream comics written, printed, and distributed without the code. The publishers were Gilberton, Dell Comics, and Gold Key Comics. Golden, Christopher, Stephen Bissett, Thomas E. Signowski, 2000. Uh, the monster, the monster books, the monster books, Simon, Simon and Schuster. Thanks to their reputation, their comics never needed or got the code seal. They even found ways to go around the limits on horror comics. Gilberton used classics illustrated: Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. While Dell, later Gold Key, got licenses to both horror and sci-fi properties in the 1960s: Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery. Twilight Zone, Ripley's Believe It or Not, Adam's Family, Monsters, etc., and even turned Frankenstein, Dracula, and Werewolf into superheroes, uh, 1966 through 1967. Comic Vine has a picture of Ripley's Believe It or Not, True Ghost Stories number one, 1965, and as you can see, and as you can see, no code on the cover. The same is true of the Karloff book from 1962 through 1980. Classics Illustrated ran from 1941 
through 1971, and none of the covers at Comic Vine has the code seal. To which I replied, all good points. I think Mike touched on this very briefly by mentioning the, quote, underground comics of the time. Uh, I myself was not familiar with the material. Thanks for the information. If you would, email me your thoughts to the episode, which, uh, you know, he didn't need to do because he got this all on the forum. And um, I, I did want, I included something in my response here that I also wanted to include uh, in episode two. Also, I know not everyone will see this, but I've been listening and re-listening to my Lanterncast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow episode to gauge what I can do better next time. Something I caught myself on. I said that Bill Gaines was, quote, pretty much responsible for creating the comics industry, unquote. That is not true. What I meant was that he was responsible for creating the horror and crime comics such as they were at the time. Max Gaines, Bill's father, was actually the one, quote, pretty much responsible for creating the comics industry, unquote. Well, one of them, at least. So apologies on that. Um, yeah, uh, I, I kind of, you know, got caught up in, in kind of misspoke there. Gaines, while he was made the, quote, villain of the comics industry during the, uh, Senate subcommittee trials on juvenile delinquency, uh, and, you know, the testimony against, uh, Wortham and such. While Gaines was pretty much vi the, the one vilified and attacked, he was not the one responsible for creating the comics industry as a whole. His company, however, was the one, you know, EC Comics, was the one that, I don't know if creating horror and crime comics is necessarily exactly the right, uh, verbiage there. But he definitely was, uh, EC Comics was definitely the, the cornerstone of horror and crime comics. If I'm not mistaken, I believe they were one of the first to do it. But even if they weren't, they were definitely the ones who, at the time that the, the Senate subcommittee trials on juvenile delinquency were taking place, were the main game when it came to horror and crime comics. And uh, if you read Tencent Plague or other sorts of material, you'll understand also Max Gaines was one of the individuals responsible for the beginning of the comics industry as a whole. So, yeah. And then uh, Max America goes on to give some uh, uh, some more information about uh, the publishers he mentioned uh, and, uh, quote, underground comics of the time. So appreciate uh, appreciate the, the response there as well. So uh, I, I've been talking for a while, guys. I, I got way more out of this than I thought I would. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to close this out, and you guys hopefully will give me lots and lots of feedback. I know it's been a long time since I got one of these episodes out over a year, and I apologize for that. Episode 3 will be coming at you at some point in February. Um, so not nearly as long as the wait. And uh, unfortunately for some of you, because I know some of you have been looking forward to this, Unfortunately, episode three will not uh, be reviewing any uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow comics. Uh, there will actually be one more episode in which we look at comics uh, and the comics code and stuff. There has been some information that has come to light since the first episode of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, the spinoff podcast, uh, between uh, then and now, um, that I will be having a kind of conversation interview with a professor about some, uh, some of the information that's come out about Frederick Wortham. Um, so, I, uh, you know, if you look up on Google, I'm sure you'll be able to figure out who I'll be speaking with. Um, but that's just a little bit of a teaser. So sometime in February, the, uh, expect episode three of uh, Green Lantern, uh, Lanterncast presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. 
and I hope you look forward to that. But in the meantime, please send me as much feedback as you can about this uh, this episode and the return to uh, the, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow podcast and your thoughts on the interviews with uh, Neil and Denny. And I hope you guys enjoy them because I sure as heck did. I hope I asked uh, poignant questions and I hope you got, got some good information out of it. So if you want to contact us, lanterncast at gmail.com is the email address. Or you can send us a voicemail at 708-LANTERN, and we'll play those on the show. Main show, if it's about the main show, or any of the spinoffs, if they're about the spinoffs. And I'm more than willing to play some voicemails about Green Lantern, Green Arrow um, on the show. So, definitely looking forward to that. And uh, also, you know, you can go to our website, lanterncast.com, and you'll find our, you know, our forum, links to our Twitter and Facebook, where you can follow or like us respectively and we'll definitely contact you there and if you're on twitter and facebook feel free to use the hashtag glcast uh for you know to help us find each other and converse with each other a little better um and also we're on stitcher so you can find us on uh, stitcher and listen to us and stream us through stitcher or we're on itunes as well and if you're on itunes feel free to drop us a review we'd be more than willing and happy to see those uh, those new reviews uh, about uh, the show and what you guys are thinking. So, hopefully you guys enjoy the return to this show. I'm rambling on. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning here. So, I'm just going to be quiet. Let these interviews speak for themselves. Shoot, us some, uh, shoot me as much feedback as you can about these episodes. I'd love to hear back from you guys. And hopefully, uh, I'll be speaking with you guys very, very soon in Episode 3 in February. So uh, I hope you enjoyed your holidays and your new year and uh, enjoyed this episode. And I'll speak with you guys later. All right. Bye.